Good morning, church. Our Bible reading today comes from the book, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. And the word of God reads, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, and providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. Will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, that each one of us here this morning might be conscious that we are listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future. For it is in his name that we ask it. Amen. Well, John 15, I hope we've all got that open in front of us. And uh, my text this morning is verse 8, where Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. Well, it's a familiar verse in a familiar passage, and I guess on the surface the meaning is clear enough, that Jesus wants every Christian to be fruitful. But uh, I wonder what goes through your mind when you read those words. Some of us, quite naturally, I think, will go to Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit 
uh, in Galatians 5. It's a lovely picture, that, isn't it, of the character that God is making in all believers by his Holy Spirit. That, of course, must be part of what Jesus means here. But is it the main point? This morning, I want us to see that in this passage, Jesus is actually saying something rather more specific. And we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, But before we get there, I want to begin by highlighting um, a spiritual disease or a spiritual sickness that is so widespread in Christian circles today that we hardly even notice it. Because I guess to a greater or lesser extent, we've all caught it. Um, Sociologists and counsellors who watch these things and write about them uh, have given this disease a name. They call it the sacred-secular divide, or... SSD for short. And uh, it's no exaggeration to say, I think, that it is a spiritual pandemic. So what are the symptoms? Well, the, the Christian suffering from SSD thinks of their lives in discrete compartments. So if we stay with the metaphor of fruit for a moment... Uh, they see their lives rather like the segments of an orange. Uh, So some segments are really important to God, uh, going to church, reading the Bible, praying, supporting mission, that sort of thing. But uh, God, they think, isn't really too bothered about the other segments of their lives. At work, spending time with the family, weekends, social media, friendships. These activities actually occupy the majority of their time, but as far as they can see, God isn't really too interested in them. In other words, it never actually enters their mind that the God who created the universe and has called all men and women to rule over his creation might have anything to say about the activities in which we're engaged for more than 90% of our waking lives. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is challenging us to see our lives rather differently. He wants us to embrace a much, much bigger vision. Uh, It's a vision of our lives that includes everything. And if we catch the vision, if we take it to heart we find that it's not only a cure for this rather distorted view that is holding us back, but it actually will lead us into a closer discipleship and a greater joy in Jesus than we've had before. So we're going to pick this up as we look at the passage under just two headings this morning. Number one, the believer's purpose And number two, the believer's power. So firstly then, the believer's purpose. Now in the course of our studies in the Gospel of John, we've sometimes heard Jesus describing himself in short, memorable phrases, beginning with the words, I am. And we've learned, haven't we, that when he does this, He's deliberately identifying himself as the God of Israel. 
the God who created everything, the God who rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, making them his own special people and giving them a land of his own, of their own. So when Jesus uses this I am formula, which he does seven times in John's Gospel, what he's doing is he's saying, I am the God with whom you've got to deal. And your relationship with me affects every area of your life. Now, uh, in our passage this morning, we have the seventh and the last of these great I am sayings, in which Jesus says, I am the vine. He says it twice. Uh, In verse 1, there it is. And it's again there in verse 5. And if Jesus says something twice, it must be important. So what is he actually saying here? Well, the vine had special significance in Israel. And you and I can immediately connect with this. Because uh, here in South Africa, we have the protea. Uh, In South Sudan, I think I'm right in saying, it's the African fish eagle. Semi, is that correct? Just nod, thank you. In uh, Namibia, it's the oryx antelope. And uh, in Zimbabwe, I understand it's the hungwe, which is, is it a mythical bird? It is, isn't it? It's a large mythical bird. And these birds and plants are all symbolic of those nations in slightly different ways. In Israel, it's the vine, because the vine is a symbol of Israel's history. What, therefore, does Jesus mean when he says, I am the vine? Now, there are lots of places in the Old Testament which talk about Israel as the vine planted and cared for by God, But the text which unlocks what Jesus is talking about here is Psalm 80. So please will you keep one finger in John 15 and travel back with me to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Now, in verse 1 of Psalm 80, uh, the psalmist, you'll notice is addressing the shepherd of Israel, who is, of course, Almighty God. So what, then, is the psalmist saying to God? Well, look down with me, please, at verse 8 and following. Verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Now pause on that, stay there. These verses, you see, are describing God rescuing Israel from bondage in Egypt and planting the nation rather like a vine in the promised land. And God's purpose in all that was that Israel would show the surrounding nations what it was like 
to be in a special relationship, to be in a covenant relationship with God, the creator of the universe. God wants the nations to look at Israel, to marvel at the extent of God's goodness to them and also their worship of him. And God wanted the nations to say, wow, you are fortunate. That's what we want. How can we get it? In other words, the main idea in the image of the vine is mission. You see, Israel was meant to be a witness to the nations and to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that through him all peoples on earth would be reconciled to God and blessed by him. Genesis 12 verse 3. But Israel, as you know, was unfaithful. So coming back to Psalm 80, verses 12 to 16 describe Israel suffering the consequences of God's judgment. So the psalmist says to God, verse 12, Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Now stay there. Stay in Psalm 80. Can you see God has got a problem? If the vine is destroyed with fire... How is God going to fulfill his missionary purpose? How will God reconcile the nations to himself through Abraham's line? Verse 17, Psalm 80. The psalmist says to God, Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. And in John chapter 15, Jesus, the Son of Man, says, I am the true vine. In other words, I've come to fulfill the missionary purpose of God. I've come to reach all the nations for him. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But there's more, isn't there? Because You and I look at that and we say, well, if Jesus is about to leave earth in John's gospel, which he is, and go back to the Father, how on earth is he going to do this? And the answer is through ordinary believers like you and like me. So when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, in verse 5, What he's really saying is, if you are a Christian and you have a living relationship with me, you, my friend, are a missionary. That's your purpose. That's why I've rescued you from sin and death. 
That's why I've given you the Holy Spirit. So one of the commentators puts it like this. He's talking about why Jesus gives Christians the Holy Spirit. And he says, quote, The gracious indwelling of God with his people is not an invitation to settle down and forget the rest of the world. It is a summons to mission. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to get up and go to Somalia or Afghanistan or any of the other countries that we saw on the World Watch List video, although for some people that is precisely what it will mean. But for most of us, it means that God is calling us to see the context, the precise context in which he has placed us as our mission field. He wants us to open our eyes and to see our context from his point of view and to know that as we step out in obedience, he's with us all the way. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, It comes from a book called Thank God It's Monday by a man called Mark Green. Uh, Mark Green uh, was, is an advertising executive. And uh, in the book, he tells this rather lovely story about himself. Quote, I'm a Jewish Christian. It's the second night of Passover. A group of us are going to celebrate it together in my flat. One of the people coming has prepared a chicken. Uh, she brings it to work and we decided to put it in the fridge in my boss's office. My boss is out that week. But David Ogilvy, the man who founded the company I work for, and the world's greatest living advertising executive, is visiting. And he's using the office on and off. I've wanted to talk to him about God. I've prayed for an opportunity to talk to him about God. But so far, I haven't had either the courage or the opportunity. I'm very junior. He is the founder of the world's fourth largest advertising agency. At four o'clock that afternoon, I realize that it is time to collect the chicken and go and prepare Passover. I wander around to my boss's office. David Ogilvy is in there. He's talking on the phone. I wait a couple of minutes. The talking stops. He's in there. He has my chicken. I'm out here. I have six people coming for supper. It's getting late. How should I introduce myself to the founder of the fourth largest advertising agency in the world? Will I be fired for trying to convert the founder? What should I say to the world's greatest living advertising guru? Perhaps, hello, I've come to collect my chicken. And I realize that God is using this dead, half-roasted chicken to force me into David Ogilvy's presence. And I'm sure that God, who knows both my lack of courage and my taste for bad puns, has had a lot of fun choosing a chicken as the thing that forces me to overcome my cowardice. I knock. 
I walk into the lion's den. All my clever lines desert me. The greatest living advertising executive looks up and says, Come in, sit down. Who are you? We talk for an hour or so, and somehow the conversation turns quickly and easily to God. God is at work, and I am not fired. I think that illustrates really rather well what Jesus is expecting of every one of us. You see, if we call ourselves Christians, if we claim we have the life of God within us, we are missionaries. That's our purpose. And as we step out in faith, Jesus will be with us, just as he was with Mark Green the believer's purpose. Let's move on and consider, secondly, the believer's power. Come back to John 15. Because, you see, if that is our purpose, the question we've got to ask is, how on earth are we going to do it? Where's the power going to come from to be effective missionaries in a world that is increasingly hostile to Jesus? The answer is twofold. First, there's something that God does, and then there's something we do. So what does the Father do? Well, he prunes the branches. In verse 1, Jesus reminds us that there's somebody else in the vineyard, doesn't he? He says, I am the true vine, And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will become even more fruitful. So the first thing that the father does is to examine carefully every branch on the vine. And like an expert gardener, his eye misses nothing. And the question he's asking is, is this branch fruitful? In other words, is it drawing on the nutrition from the main stem so as to produce a good crop? And if it isn't, and if there's no fruit and no possibility of any fruit in the future... Well, quite obviously, it doesn't belong in the vine, does it? And the father cuts it off. Now, John, who wrote this gospel, assumes that you and I are careful readers. So he doesn't spell it out for us. But surely, Jesus is thinking about Judas here. You see, Judas appeared to belong to Jesus, didn't he? He was one of the twelve, he served as treasurer, Uh, he saw all the miracles, he heard all the sermons, he looked like a disciple, but he never had a saving relationship with Jesus. So there was no fruit in his life, and far from embracing the mission of Jesus, he despised it 
And instead of a life of attractive fruit, his heart was full of bitterness and betrayal. So what did God do? Well, in the end, he cut him off. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 2 that the father isn't just cutting off the dead branches. No, where there's any evidence of real spiritual life on a branch, no matter how fragile it might be, the father is at work to nurture and strengthen it. So what does he do? Well, he cuts away everything that diverts the life-giving nutrition and nourishment from the fruit. That's not a very easy thing for us to hear this because, well, it sounds drastic, doesn't it? It sounds painful. But just think about it with me for a moment. Because becoming a fruit-producing Christian isn't easy, is it? Put your hand up if you find becoming a fruit-producing Christian easy. Anybody? Nobody. You see, for a start, the very last thing that the devil wants is to see you and me growing. And one of his favorite tactics and strategies is to divert our energies into a thousand different activities which might seem interesting, and perhaps even rather urgent. But they produce absolutely no fruit for God. And instead what they do is they consume vast amounts of time and energy that would be more profitably directed elsewhere. So, the Father prunes these things away. Yes, it does sound drastic. And in one sense it is. But you see, because it's the Father's hand that's holding the knife, we can be absolutely certain that the process has a loving and a glorious purpose in it. Now, I would understand if some of you are thinking, well, just show me, Simon, how this pruning can possibly be for my good. What is God's answer to that question? Well, no doubt there are lots of different answers we could look at. But whenever God has been busy pruning me, there's a place in the Psalms where I've often looked for comfort, and I'd like to share it with you now. Won't you please turn back to Psalm 119? Psalm 119. We won't read the whole psalm. But won't you please put your nose on verse 67. If you don't know the verses I'm going to mention to you yet, I do want to commend them to you as memory verses because I think they illustrate brilliantly exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 15. Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. We could say, couldn't we, before I was pruned, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And what about verse 71? The psalmist says, it was good for me 
that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now I suggest that the psalmist is simply putting into words what you and I know deep down anyway, which is that left to our own devices, the natural bias in your heart and mine is to turn away from God. By nature, all of us will wander away. But the point you see is that God loves you and I far too much to let us go on doing that indefinitely. And so God does sometimes use affliction to prune us, to pull us back into a life of obedience and spiritual security. Who's heard of Amy Carmichael? A few of you. An American missionary who served in India for over 50 years. She reflected often on John chapter 15. And she prayed quite often this simple prayer. She prayed, rid me, Lord, of every diverting thing. And then commenting on that, she went on to say, what prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves, the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. But with a tried and trusty gardener, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing is cut away that it would not have been loss to keep and gain to lose. So the first source of power for the believer is the father's pruning, which he does for your good and my good, as well as for his glory. But the second source of power calls for action by you and me, and it's described by Jesus in John 15, verse 4. John 15, verse 4, Jesus says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Now, Jesus uses that word remain no less than ten times in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 15. He uses it, obviously, to describe the relationship between a fruitful believer and himself. And I assume that if Jesus says it ten times... It's because it's something you and I are quite likely to forget. So what does Jesus mean? Some commentators have suggested that remain is just another word for believe. Well, maybe. But if that was all that Jesus meant, he would have said, wouldn't he? Believe in me and I will remain in you. But he didn't. And if you think about it, Jesus cannot be saying that the branch bears fruit simply by believing in the vine, as if kind of the branch is over here and the stem of the vine is over there and the branch has got a life of its own. I'm a hopeless gardener, but the little I do know tells me that that is not how plants produce good fruit. Now, the whole point of the imagery is that the branch bears fruit only if it remains connected to the vine in such a way that it is constantly 
drawing on the nutrition and strength provided by the main stem. Surely that's right. Some of you might have a, a message, translation of the Bible at home, the message. Do some of you know that? I think it actually has a better version of verse 5. It says, it has Jesus saying this, I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relationship, intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. So I suggest to you that it is more accurate to say that to remain in Jesus means to be intimately and organically connected to him. Now that is a great deal more, isn't it, than simply believing in him. It's really, really important for us to understand this because if we are vitally and organically connected to Jesus, he will produce the fruit in our lives which God is looking for. That must be what Jesus means. It must be why he says what he does in verse 5, where he says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And then he says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, just be clear, you know, Jesus is not saying that we can't do anything without him. There are lots of things we can do without Jesus. We can sin. We can stop bearing fruit. We can die everlastingly without him. What Jesus means is that without him, we can do nothing truly good. Nothing God-honoring. Nothing that is self-denying, that is eternally helpful for other people. And if we try, we'll simply end up discouraged and exhausted. Now, can I ask you this morning, is does that describe your relationship with Jesus? Is your relationship with Jesus intimate and organic, or is it formal and distant? What does this life-giving, organic relationship look like in practice? Verse 7, can we all see verse 7 in our Bibles? Jesus says, if you remain in me, now look at this next phrase, and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. So when Jesus talks about his words remaining in us, what he means is, keep on trusting everything that I've said to you, that I am loving you deeply, moment by moment, and keep on trusting that everything I've revealed about myself and my work for you is true. That is what it looks like for you to remain in him and his words to remain in you. And as soon as I say that, I do hope the application is obvious. It means, doesn't it, we've got to take his words seriously. Perhaps more seriously than we've ever done before. 
It means we've got to study his words in order to understand them. It obviously means that. It means we've got to meditate on his words so that they change our priorities and our character. It means we need to memorize his words in order that they comfort us and strengthen us in all our trials and guide us in our decision-making. In short, it means that the words of Jesus need to become a burning fire within us. And that, of course, will inevitably lead us to pray. That's why Jesus says here, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Don't misread that as Jesus giving you a blank check. He's not doing that. This isn't a name it and claim it verse. You know, just what is the, the context quite obviously controls the meaning, doesn't it? And the context is mission. So when Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, he means that as we step out in obedience to our calling as missionaries, we can pray for all the resources we need to get the job done. That is what Jesus means. So we can pray for courage. We can pray for the right words to say. We can pray for faithfulness in following up. And we can pray that God will open the hearts and minds of the people that we are ministering to so that they believe the gospel and are reconciled to God. And notice, will you, that Jesus says, when we pray like that, our prayers will be answered. It is a promise. And surely that is a wonderful, wonderful truth for us to be taking with us into our lives in 2023. Let's pray together. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus you've kept your promise to bring rescue and reconciliation to all the peoples of the earth. Thank you for rescuing us and for calling us to serve as missionaries right where we are. Please help us to remain close to Jesus, feeding on his word. And as we do, please form in us the fruit that will accomplish your missionary purpose for a lost and a dying world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.